Welcome, everybody, to the Radical Therapist Podcast. This is your host, Chris Hoff. We are now at episode 100. Yep, made it to 100 episodes. Uh, and I want to just start by saying thank you to everybody who listens to the podcast, who shared the podcast. Um, has written me over the years, uh, sharing with me how the podcast has helped them in various ways, and also all the educators that use the podcast and their um, teaching processes. Uh, I really appreciate that. And of course, I want to thank all the guests that have given so generously of their talents to come on and spend some time with me uh, talking about ideas, their ideas and ways of working and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it's just been a great run. And I just, I'm going to keep doing them and I keep having fun. And so everybody, thank you. We're at 100 episodes. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, and real quick, just one quick announcement. There's a new video up on YouTube titled... Uh, decentered but influential the role of the therapist so if you're interested in uh, the role of the therapist that um, that those that are interested in practicing from particular locations like post-structural post-modern narrative therapy etc uh, what might the role of the therapist will be and that's on YouTube just google the radical therapist on YouTube or search the radical therapist on YouTube and um yeah. Okay. So we have a, a, a great, another great episode for you today. It's actually my friend, you know, I thought this was kind of fitting. I got a friend, my good friend, Michael Moore, uh, is coming on and he's going to be talking about his work around single session narrative therapy. And what you might not know about Michael is I think he's the first Navy SEAL slash turned narrative therapist. He was with, uh, I don't know if you, uh, he would say he was a Navy SEAL, but he was in the Navy. He was with the special boat teams uh, stationed in Coronado. And they, you know, they work very closely with the SEALs. They get them everywhere, I guess. But yeah, the same kind of training, all that kind of stuff. So very interesting uh, background. And now working from this narrative perspective and in a particularly interesting uh, narrative perspective. So yeah, Michael's got, let's just get right into it. He's got an uh, interesting background, uh, you know, from Louisiana, went to Louisiana State, worked in the pharmace pharmaceutical industry for several years, switched gears, joined the Navy. Uh, he worked with the special boat team stationed in Coronado, like I said, uh, deployed to multiple locations in the Middle East, and then came back Working in the pharmaceutical industry, I think, decided that wasn't for him and ended up going back to school and, you know, where he, because he got an interest in working in mental health um, and went to uh, Pepperdine University out here in California, where that's where I met him and actually was a former student of mine, which is kind of cool. And we be became friends. And uh, now we have these, and I know you have these friends where you just sit around and talk about <laughs> Like therapy, we, we sit around and talk about therapy, among other things, but we sit around and talk about therapy a lot. So, so Michael now is a, a licensed marriage and family therapist in California and Texas. He's currently in his fifth year of his doctorate program, completing his internship at the Institute for Multicultural Counseling and Education, education Services uh, here in Los Angeles. He also has a small private practice. 
and is completing his dissertation titled, When You Have a Whole Hour, Conversation Analysis of Narrative Practice and, single se- and a Single Session of Therapy. I'm actually on his dissertation committee. I'm happy about that. And he's uh, wrapping up his postdoctoral fellowship at the Miracle Mile Community Practice in Los Angeles. Many of you will know that as uh, David Marston's location in L.A. Uh, So he's working closely with David, and he's working towards his licensure as a psychologist and um, doing a a practice in L.A. So, so yeah, we're going to talk about single-session narrative therapy. So let's get to it. All right, Michael, welcome to the Radical Therapist Podcast. Hey, Chris. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know you are my 100th episode, so I hope you feel special. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I was just looking, you know, I was listening to Peggy Sachs the other day, and I was counting, I saw the numbers, and I'm like, this is going to be the 100th episode. I mean, and I was wondering if you had looked back at all the guests. I mean, you've had a lot of heavy hitters and you know you've had such a wide variety of people in general and i don't know have you have you looked back at at all the guests you've had and been like wow yeah it's been it's been quite a ride i i somebody told me early on that like the average podcast only does like six episodes (laughs) so i got to 100 and yeah and i've had a great um lineup of people um and it's so thank you to all of them that have been part of the radical therapist for the hundredth episode up to the hundredth episode. And I just want to say, you know, people just, you know, have been very generous by just saying, yes, just like you, you know, when I asked you to come on here and, you know, people have just been really generous about saying yes, uh, to sitting and having some conversations with me about their ideas, which I, I love to do. So, yeah. Well, I mean, and I was even thinking about how much this show has changed, like what I actually do in therapy. I mean, I can remember when you had Larry Zucker on, um, you know, I think he was like one of your first 20 guests or so. And I I can remember writing down some of the stuff like I was writing feverishly during uh, (laughs) during that podcast. I was writing it all down. And I I think it was like a Wednesday because I had this the first couple I ever worked with was like this time. And I, I used, you know, some of the, uh, one of the questions he asked was around like um, asking the other partner to imagine their partner's experience, you know? So I was using that stuff. And so, yeah, I'm just, all that to say is that a lot of the, the guests you've had, I've been able to apply in either my practice or in some of my writing. And so it's, it's been really helpful. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. And that's been probably the best compliment that I get students you know the podcast is part of their syllabus it's you know teachers are using it and you know students are being exposed to it in that way and i think as an educational tool that just that makes my day and so um and you know i'm glad it's 100 you're you know uh i can (laughs) i guess i could publicly say we're friends right we've known each other (laughs) for several years now so it's nice to have a friend on on my 100th uh episode and and get to talk about your work and um yeah, so um, let's get going. We're gonna today. We're talking about single session therapy, or specifically single session narrative therapy. And I guess I want to maybe start by, you know, how did this approach enter your awareness? How did this become interesting to you? This kind of single session, which we'll probably we'll move into one at a time type thinking. But yeah, what do you think? Yeah, so. 
first I'll just say accidentally probably is the easiest way to answer that. But so when I was finishing up my master's at Pepperdine, you know, I didn't know how, you know, school was going to go. I hadn't been in school for a while. You know, I, I was lucky to finish up my undergrad, quite honestly. I mean, I, you know, if it went the whole time, like my first two years would have gone, I probably wouldn't have graduated. Um, and so I didn't know how it was going to go. And so when I went back to Pepperdine, I, I really loved the experience. And so I was just trying to figure out how can I, how can I get more of this? Um, you know, a lot of times that's not exactly possible. But so I was looking for a doctorate program to go to. Just so our audience knows, and when you say yeah. Pepperdine, you were in a specifically narrative therapy training uh, kind of context, right? Yeah. And I would also say my whole experience at Pepper, you know, so I was training at the Pepperdine clinic there, which is a, a narrative therapy, fo- you know, like that's where I learned about narrative therapy as well, which right. I, another one, which was accidental. Well, I remember when you were a young CBT person, <laughs> remember when you were in my research class or, and, we yeah. were kind of, and we were having conversations about, and I was trying to sneak some post-structural ideas into kind of a research methods class and that's how we met right yeah well and even as i was going to i i think at the time i took your class i was scheduled to be working at the clinic and i can remember thinking like i was glad to be doing my practical my training at the clinic but i can remember thinking what is this narrative therapy bullshit you know like <laughs> I, I like i was not exactly sinking that out yeah right right yeah and so you know, what ended up happening, though, is that that became really important to me. So I wanted to kind of continue to be able to work in those kind of ways. So I was looking for a program that might have that in, in a doctorate program, which is, you know, it's it's hard to find, you know. So I was looking for, you know, either through a, a psychology program or an MFT doctorate program. And so I found, you know, I met Marcella Planko and I learned that she was teaching at Our Lady of the Lake. And so I figured that they must have something going on there that mm-hmm. might fit with that way of doing things. Mm-hmm. And so it was, you know, the official language they use at, at Our Lady of the Lake is like strengths-based, you know, um, because, but it is rooted in, in postmodern uh, like epistemologies. Mm-hmm. And they use that just because it gets kind of convoluted for some people and it's just easier to say strengths-based. Um, and so, you know, they do a lot of like the, the postmodern therapies, which is like, you know, like Tom Strong calls these, I think, uh, uh, was discursive therapies. Yes, right. Yep. And so like SFT, like solution focused, collaborative language with like Harleen yeah, um, and work. narrative yeah. therapy. Yep. And so it was there that I met and I, I trained with Monty Bobel um, and Arnie Slive. And so they have taught and done a lot around single session therapy over the last, I don't, maybe 30 years. And so, and, and we trained in a live supervision training model as well. So, which, you know, if, if people don't know, it's like a team model and you're, you're basically supervisor and the team, you know, so it's kind of like you have a bunch of peer supervisors um, and you go in with a co-therapist and um, you have like an intermission and you go back and kind of discuss how things are going. And then you kind of go back and, uh, and, and kind of end the case, but the whole time the clients know kind of how this is going to go. Hmm. But but my point is, is that when you're training in a live supervision training model, there's nowhere to hide. At, you know, there's your work is is there for. I mean, 
especially when you're when you're first learning this or even if you've been doing therapy for a while and you do a live supervision training model it, it's it's an adjustment just getting used to that mm, i'm sure and so anyway that's where i kind of came to these to um to like a single session mindset i would say is is that i learned that through arnie and um uh, and monty and and most of the stuff that i'll say here in some ways i learned through those guys right well, let's start with that. Let's talk about just for our audience. I mean, can you share a single session therapy has a long history and I'm wondering if you could share a bit about the origin or, or origins of single session therapy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it's, this is a good question because, um, even as I start to describe like some of these things, you'll, you'll probably notice like, Oh yeah, that's single session. And, and you've, you've been aware of it probably for a while. Um, and plus, I just found like some of the stuff really interesting, you know, which is, you know, like even if you go back to Freud, um, he did, there's two documented cases of single session with Freud. There's probably more, but in terms of documented ones. And the first one was like with Aurelia, who was an 18 year old, the innkeeper's daughter. And so she was reporting like experiencing this suffocating feeling and like these visions of like this terrifying face. Um, when she would either wake up or think she was awake. Um, and so the anxiety um, started after she witnessed her uncle having sex with the maid. And so Freud helped her to trace these back to the, her time when like the uncle made sexual advances to her. And so in a single session, and so I, I think this one's also important just for like how we might think about trauma and, and things like that, mm -hmm. um, is that often the healing can really happen in, a, in or begin to happen in an, in a single session or, or in one session. It doesn't mean that, a, you know, other sessions can be used, you know, like, and one of the things I'll, I'll probably mention at some point, but single session, probably the biggest myth is, is not one, one session. Right, so right, that like, right. yeah. um, and so then the other one with Freud was like this guy Mailer and he was, he had tried to schedule an appointment with Freud for a long time and he kept missing like the intake session. I don't, I don't think Freud called it an intake session, but, and so anyway, they ended up meeting and having one session and they had like a, a walking session. And so like, this was pre COVID, you know? And so, <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and so they, they, the whole time they walked and then the guy, like what he was experiencing didn't, it did not manifest again. And, and so then if you go on from like Adler, and so most people know Adler is like a disciple of Freud. And so he did like these public demonstrations of therapy with like parents and children, some sometimes separately, sometimes mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. And so these were uh, single sessions. They were therapeutic and they were both educational and um, it helped the people that were meeting with him. And so meanwhile, Ellis, Albert Ellis is watching this. He sees Adler doing this. And so he starts this thing called what let's see it's Friday night workshops. And so they started in 1965 and went till 2005. So it was like 40 years. Wow. And so what it was every Friday, I don't have you heard of, have, had you heard of that before? No, no. I'm wondering if that's some version of narrative and pizza that <laughs> John Winslow <laughs> and Lorraine Hedke used to do. Right? Well, well, it looks, it's some version of it because it seems like they kind of did some reflecting type stuff too. I don't, they didn't call it that, yeah. but they had, they would do 30 minute sessions and like you would have a volunteer slash client mm. and he would do two of those 30 minutes each. And afterwards the um, people in the audience would ask questions mm. and like give reflections 
um, to both to Ellis and to um, the, the volunteer clients. And it went that long. It went, what was that? Like 40 years? 40, yeah. Okay. Like, you know, 2005 wasn't that long ago that it ended. Oh, no, right. Yeah. And then, so then you had like Milton Erickson. Um, and so if most people, if they're not familiar, he's like the father of modern hypnotherapy. Right. He's also known as like a really creative therapist. And so his thing in a way, what, well, I, not in a what way. I understand in, influential in some ways to David Epstein early on. Right. And yeah. 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 I mean, I think a lot of people that work in this, like in these discursive therapies draw from, from Erickson. Sure. Um, and so for him, the single session was the most common number of like most of his sessions were single sessions. Um, and, and so then the, the next one I'm going to mention, and everyone's going to probably have watched is like the Gloria videos. Right. And so like anyone that goes to graduate oh, school, yeah, I don't yeah, think yeah, you, yeah, yeah. I don't think you get out of graduate school without having to watch the, the Gloria videos. Right. 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 And so well, explain, which was explain like, them really quick, just in case. Some yeah. Yeah. Them. So it's like the um, one client Gloria was seen by three, three therapists for 30 minutes each. And the three therapists were Rogers, Carl Rogers, um, yep. Carl Rogers Fritz Pearls and Albert Ellis. Yep. And so what they're doing is kind of like seeing which one Gloria liked the best. It's kind of, that's what that was about, um, which was, you know, and Gloria, although, you know, like she was somewhat role-playing, but it was somewhat kind of, you know, like half and half, which I think is a lot of ways these things end up being like these demonstration sure, things. Yeah. So anyway, this was just another um, single session because there are 30 minutes or less each and it, and it showed clearly what could be gained in a, in a brief therapeutic conversation. Yep. <clears throat> so, yeah, thank you for that. And I guess, so yeah. how, how do you, at this point, how do you define a single session, single, single session <clears throat> therapy? Yeah. Excuse me. For yeah. some reason, I'm <laughs> <It's okay. clears throat> sorry about that. Maybe an edit that out or something. Sure. I don't know. Or, or not. <laughs> <laughs> or not. Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, the first thing, maybe I'll start off by saying like what. Yeah. Or how, how about this question? What elements do all single session approaches kind of have or share? Well, I'd rather, can I ask yeah. the first, answer the sure, first sure, question? Sure, sure, yeah, sure. So I'll answer that. Cause I, cause it kind of, I think in answering this question, we can kind of get to that. So okay. I'll say kind of what single session is not, which is it's not one, just not just one session of therapy, and it's not limiting clients to the number of sessions. Hmm. In fact, it's somewhat of a par it's a paradoxical thing that uh, for a single session to be successful, to do what we wanted to do, which is you know put clients in the driver's seat to decide how many sessions might be fit best for them, is that. Clients have, you know, clients have to believe in, and it has to be true that they, that additional sessions are possible. Mm -hmm. So without that there, it does, the whole thing kind of comes crumbling down. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. And so for it to work best, clients have to be in control of whether they come back for sessions or not. Now, I mean, it's not to say that there's, you know, cause the other thing is that single session, there's not just one way to do single session either. So like, you know, but I'd say most people, put single session in this category of that the clients are the ones deciding and it's not just limiting them to one therapy session. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's more open-ended than time limited. Um, if, 
is kind of how I would, how I think about it too. And I'd say my, a really good definition of it for me is, is what's, you know, other people also call it like one at a time therapy. So yeah. it's not so much about single session. It's that it's each session you're, you're taking each session as if it could be the one and only session or each session if it's, if it's the last session. Um, and so, you know, actually I was just reading this, this article that Tolman wrote. And so he's, he was like the, the way people are thinking about single session now started in like 1990 with uh, Mashi Tolman. He was working at um, um, Kaiser at the time. And he just noticed that a lot of people were not coming back. Um, and he was wondering what was going on. And so he started doing some research in it. And so anyway, this article that I just stumbled upon that I can't believe that I, that I hadn't read before, he, he, uh, he's like looking back 25 years after he wrote his book in 1990. And so he says like, the goal has always been to make the most of every therapeutic session, whether seeing a client only once or over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's more about how we're thinking about therapy mm -hmm. than it is actually limiting therapy to one session. Got it. And oh, so, but are there certain elements that? Yes. Yeah. And okay. so, well, I'll say, yeah, I mean, kind of yes and no, because that same article that I just happened to reference there is this, is that the reason why I wrote this article was kind of to reflect back to after 25 years and to also describe why he did not want to do a manualized version, because as you might imagine, HMOs really get, might get fired right. up about a time limited thing. Right. And so they, they came to him and lots of people were asking him to put together like a manualized version of it. And ultimately just said like, it didn't fit for him. Like it, it's contrary to what single session or his idea of single session and what it, what it is to do. And so, he, you know, but even then, I think in this article, he talks like the three things, some of the things he talks about is the same things that you might see in therapy, just stuff like um, a positive therapeutic relationship, um, offering clients a better understanding of the problem than they currently have. And the other one was like the extra therapeutic factors. Sure. But he does go on, you know, so that's like the, the maybe like, yes. So there's, it's a yes and no kind of, kind of answer here. So, um, Tallman and most of the, the authors that write on this, so like Monty and, and Arnie in, in their book as well, write about three things, which they call like mindset, time, and client empowerment. So, and so again, I would say here, here it's not so much what they're doing, but kind of how they're thinking about things that influences what they're doing. So it's, it's mindset. And so some of these things I'll kind of define for like how it's official they define it and maybe how I tweak it a little bit. Sure. So, so like mindset is, and I think to do single session therapy or kind of to be working in this mindset that that's the most important thing is to be thinking a lot about um, uh, the belief that some, something good can happen in one session and that the, the first session could be the last. So it's, it's kind of like this mindset that, this may be the one and only session that I see a client. And the reason why that that's the case is because the research shows that the most frequently attended number of sessions is one. Mm -hmm. 
And, and so, you know, and then the next most attended number of sessions is two, you know, and so, and, and so on. And so it's with that mindset, if you're thinking hypothetically, it may be the one and only time people see you and not. And so I think initially people might be thinking the reason why that happens is because something went bad. Mm-hmm. And, and no, the research has actually shows something different is that people are getting what they needed from one session. Um, not that the therapy sucked or something right, along those right, lines. Right. And so then the other thing on time. And so for me, this kind of fits in the mindset thing as well, um, which is it's predicated on the belief that, that the therapists believe and expect that change can occur in the moment. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so like the part I might tweak with that is, so it's not to be confused with an aha moment. In fact, I'm kind of like count, I'm like anti aha moment, <laughs> I think, you know, or, 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 I'm not anti aha moment, but I'm, I'm, I think change more often happens gradually. Mm-hmm. And, and cause then it has people thinking like, where's my aha moment? You yeah. know, like, what am I doing wrong? I'm not, yeah. where's my aha. So I'm, I'm just, it's not that I don't believe in, certainly those things happen, but there's enough people touting the aha moment. So, yeah. so I'd say that it's not so much that it's occurring in the moment that it, that it can begin to happen in the moment. Sure. Because, I, you know, I, I've had <clears throat> what ends up happening a lot of times is that clients will. Um, one of the things that we did at the clinic at, at Our Lady of the Lake is that we clients can make an appointment to come back even like it's not limited to one. But we didn't let them make the appointment that day because oftentimes what will happen <clears throat> is that change begins to happen. And even over the next week. Um, I think it's, it could gradually happen. It's happening over time. And so when we cut the number of people that we, most people didn't call back and make an appointment because change started to happen, but, but sometimes right away, even in the session or, or right afterwards, you, you might not no, notice it. Sure. And the third one then is just the client empowerment, you know, and so it's, it's still consistent to me with the th- same theme, which is clients have the capacity to change like what their, their thoughts, their feelings, their, you know, like, or their, how they are in relationship to the problem, you know, mm-hmm. is that they're able to do that within, you know, one to few sessions and, or that they can decide how many sessions they need to do that. Great. Okay. But, but your interest lies in applying narrative, the narrative therapy approach to single session therapy. And I'm wondering how do you maintain the politic of narrative therapy and single session therapy? Is there an epistemological fit per se? What do you think? Yeah, this is, this is a good question because if I think at first I thought that this was, yeah, like that, yeah, because for me, if you look at, you know, for me, narrative therapy is, is kind of, although like this name gets overused, it's like it has social justice kind of built into it, at least for me, right? And it, it doesn't mean that we don't have to tend to our own, you know, ways that we might, you know, be colonize, do colonizing practices sure. with that. Sure. That being said, so is that um, a single session is reducing, you know, it's, Kind of even how it started is it's reducing the access to therapy, and so anytime you're doing that, in my opinion, that it's a socially justed, orient, socially just oriented model of therapy, and that you're 
creating greater access for people because a lot of times people will start using a single session when they have really long waiting list, you know, and, you know, like agencies or university counseling centers. And so what single session does is reduce or eliminate waiting lists because people can walk in. So another name for, for single session is also like walk in yeah, and or drop in or walk in or yeah. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. And so Monty and Arnie, I think did a lot of the work around that. And so um, it's, it's socially just perspective in my, just starting off with that part, anytime you're increasing access to care, Got it. Okay, just starters. Okay. And then the rest of it is that, because the other thing is like, you know, like how my narrative therapy differ from other models in single session. Right. And so I, so it's kind of like the, the same thing, which is the same way in which I'm tending to power and that I'm tending to the, like the, the tenets of, um, narrative therapy in with working with clients long-term is that I'm doing the same thing in, in if people are, you know, to me, it's an invitation for um, attending one or fewer sessions. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm not necessarily really doing anything different other than how I'm setting it up from the beginning. Mm. Um, and there and, is and something so about you're trying to, center the agency in the client like do they even want to come back kind of thing <laughs> yeah and so that's so and then yeah thanks and so the, the the other part of it is exactly that and that's what draws me to it the most is that it's putting clients in the driver's seat to decide how many how many sessions they need and so like let's just say for example it was it was us saying like you know what we find that most people get what they need from one session um but you can't come back, you know? Yeah. So then we're just going the other direction with it. Right. And so I think that, it, I mean, who knows, maybe some people do it like that, but it, you know, cause I can remember you had, yeah, I think one of the people you had on the show, I, I was thinking about this was Ali Borden. This was a while yeah. back. Yeah, this yeah, was yeah. like maybe five years ago. Mm -hmm. And I remember her saying something about you guys were talking about AA. I, I, you either you asked her something about AA, like what was her perspective on that or something. And she said, AA is a good, it's good to have on the menu of possibilities to choose from, but it's not the menu and it's not the, the only um, you know, thing in town. Yeah, it's not you the know? only thing and, you can order. <laughs> yeah. Like, like the, there's, the, it's, it's, on the menu of possibilities that might work for folks. And so I think it's really important to present. So all I'm trying to do is put this on the menu for people to choose from, because if people don't see that as a legitimate possibility, then they might end up doing something like coming to one session of therapy, maybe getting what they need, but then feeling like, uh, you know, like, Hey, I'm supposed to come back or I'm not doing it right or something along those lines. Mm. And then they get labeled like a, you know, like even if it's just by themselves because they, they hear elsewhere, which is that they're, they're like drop, dropping out of therapy or that they're, they're resistant or something like that. Right, right. So all I'm really trying to do is put it on the menu of possibilities of what might work for them and what might, um, what might be possible in one or two sessions, you know, and I don't know about you, Chris, but if, if you've had this experience of like, and, and Tolman talks about this a little bit in this article, which is oftentimes the first session 
bears the most fruit as well. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like I've had people I've worked with over time that like all the work that we did was like some extension of the stuff we covered in the first session. I, I don't sure, know if you've sure, had that sure, experience. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so um, I don't want to be the one deciding that they're supposed to come back to address each of one of those issues or, or how much all those things need to be tended to. Mm -hmm. so, so to me, it's putting this on the menu of possibilities so that clients can decide. It's putting, you know, it, it, so in, in this one, these tenants was around their empowerment. You know, like I'm not a huge fan of the word empowerment. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm more of a fan of like agency. Sure. And so I'm thinking about it and anything I'm doing, I hope that I'm doing in some way that is in the service of agency in service of agency. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, I was going to ask you about how narrative therapy, single session therapy or narrative single session therapy looks different than other approaches, but I think you kind of covered that. Is there anything else you want to say about that or? Yeah. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, so it, it is the case that, um, you, you know, if you see someone doing solution focused or narrative therapy, ver you know, in in, say, a single session. Um, and, and well, let me say this, too, is, is that single session is not a model of therapy. It's a it's a service delivery model. Sure. And, you know, and although like that's not exactly my language, like the service delivery <laughs> thing, I kind of think about it in putting clients in the driver's seat, mm -hmm. you know, to decide like what's going to fit best for them, you know, something like that. But it's, so it's, it's not a, a theoretical model of in and of itself, not just, but at the same time, I don't think anything's exactly a theoretical. I don't know if that's really possible mm -hmm. um, because it has, I mean, cause even if someone, cause you could, there's someone, there's a guy in, in the UK who's doing this like from a CBT perspective, mm. But he, you know, like those same tenants that I'm talking about, though, in terms of like the empowerment, the mindset and the time, like he, you know, he puts those things in his book, too. So he's he's moving to the left a bit, I'd have to say, for a CBT guy. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, and so it, it's got some theoreticalness to it. I, I don't see how you can get a, away from that. Right. Right. But but for solution like only thing I could probably compare it to is because when I first learned this, it was within maybe a, more of a solution focused orientation and i think that most of the times you know like the, the, there's another person doing a, a lot of work and she's been doing this for a long time single session and narrative therapy is karen young in canada mm -hmm. um and so um all the things that she writes about in terms of narrative therapy she covers all all the same kind of um in in this kind of mindset but it's kind of the belief in in their agency you know and so the biggest difference would just be things like you know, solution focused, you're going to generally solution focused folks aren't as much talking about the problem, so to speak, you right, know? Right. Right. Um, and so, you know, like I, I'm really interested in hearing about the problem in narrative therapy in, in however many sessions, because the problem is like, uh, as Maggie Carey might say like a pathway to not solutions, but like alternatives. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like, alternative ways, you know, like when someone's talking to me about guilt or, or grief or, um, you know, so yeah, like, like the other thing is I'm not necessarily looking for solutions and I'm not just looking for exceptions in terms of like when the, when the problem isn't present. I mean, certainly, you know, like I'm, it's not that I'm not looking for those either, but you know, like solution focus might be interested in when is the problem not present? 
And for narrative therapy, I'm going to get really curious when someone's telling me that they're experiencing a lot of guilt because they're, they're you know, I just had this client describing this to me yesterday of feel like a parent that's sick and she thinks is going to die here fairly soon. And the guilt that she's, she's afraid this parent's going to die before she is able to make up to them like past mistakes or in some ways, you know, so like, to, so what I mean by pathway to alternatives is something is really important to her there that mm -hmm. I'm really going to be curious about, mm -hmm. you know, like what is that that's, that's, that you're tending to now that maybe you weren't as interested in like 15 years ago or 10 years ago. Like, sure. like what is, what does that say about your relationship now or, or how you're thinking about your relationship and, um, and, and how they're experiencing this relationship. And so, I mean, that, that's what I mean by pathway to alternatives is like, what else might be going on? And so, and, and that's why I'm, because I'm always really curious about things like that. And if I'm not able to, you know, it's not to say that solution focus wouldn't, you know, do that, but it's, it's just not really what solution focus is, mm -hmm. so to speak. Okay. Um, you touched on this earlier, but I, this idea, you know, I've heard, I heard that a better description of single session therapy is one at a time therapy. And you talked about one at a time therapy, but I, I had a previous narrative supervisor described to me. I remember this years ago that she approaches each session as it's a kind of its own individual moment and its own individual thing. And, and that's something that I continue to pass on to the people I supervise and train to. And I wonder if you could say more about your thoughts about this approach, because it sounds to me like uh, one at a time captures it better than single session, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Well, because the same guy, uh, Wendy Dryden, the UK guy that yeah. I mentioned, yeah. you know, so he talks about this in terms of, and I don't know if this story will like transfer in the way I'm about to tell it, but it's, he calls it in, in the UK, there's something called Ron seal. All right. It's like R O N S E A L. And it's like this, this lacquer finish or something like that. And so like, it's the name says what it does, you know, like it's, it's a seal, you know? And, and so he says it's so, you know, single session kind of has the opposite problem is that it, it's, he's the one that talks about like the paradoxicalness of the whole thing, which is, it's not one session. It's, and I do think that the more accurate description is one at a time, because it, I think even when I was first thinking, learning about single session, I was, it, it didn't even exactly fit for me at first is because I was learning about it, thinking about it as like a single session, um, you know, because, you know, if single sessions saying like, we don't want to take for granted the idea that people need to come back over a long period of time. So, cause I like that from the beginning because it's bringing into question traditional ways of doing therapy, you know? And so, but I don't want to go the exact other direction with it. Um, and so I, I want to open up space for other things. And so one at a time for me, um, and I, I, I'm guessing for most people, too, is that one at a time sounds like a whole different thing than single session therapy, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. And, and so when I think about it that way, even though I know, like, I just 
one at a time just seems to like it's it's that it sounds open ended like it just fits not just kind of better like way better in in my opinion um but at the same time like single session like rolls off the tongue well but in terms of like what i'm at like what i'm doing in therapy like single session doesn't fit and one at a time really works well because like the other thing is like yeah it's it's an open ended thing versus it just being a, a one time thing Okay, uh, a couple more questions for you, Michael. This has been great. Thank you. Um, first, what is your advice or encouragement for those wanting to adopt this way of working, to adopt this mindset, to, I don't know, what do you think? Yeah, um, and so first I would say, because <laughs> um, the biggest challenge I think with this, I mean, is that it gets ingrained in us, I think, pretty earlier pretty early in terms of all, I don't think anyone has gets away from this idea of clients coming back being some measurement of like our value as a therapist, like what we're doing, you know, like as some measurement of outcome. Hmm. And so I don't know if we can ever completely get away from that, but I would encourage people, even if you're not to, to maybe try and in, like it's something that happens over time, you know, like, and I, you know, and I think that when you get busier too, like sometimes you might not have, <laughs> you might be looking to open up more space. So it might even be, be easier, but, but it's, so the one thing I would say is that it is when we're, when we're measuring outcomes and, and even if you're not doing it, you know, like oftentimes other people that maybe are working where you are, you know, like that's going to be there, you know, like to some degree. And so it's kind of like what we do with that. I mean, what might be different? How might therapy be different if we start measuring it the other way? You know, like, um, you know, if, if people get what they need from fewer sessions, you know, and because when I first learned about single session, I was thinking people weren't coming back because, they didn't have a good experience or something like that. Yeah, it was bad therapy or it was a tool of the industry or the insurance industry or something like that. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so when, so all that to say is that I think that um, to do this work and to really do it in a way, because, you know, I, I wouldn't say I do this exactly, but I'd say I do more of this now, which and it, it might sound bad the way I'm going to say it, but it's something like from the first conversation I have with people, I'm opening up like doors and windows and possibilities for different ways in which people don't have to come back or that they can, that there's no expectation that they come back. And it's, it's helped me move away from this idea that whether they come back or not means that I did a good job or a bad job. Um, and so I, I, the one thing I would say, like people that want to do this or, cause this is the other thing you could be doing this kind of work and have repeat and like have all like longer term clients, you know? So like maybe back to your question and like your supervisor's way of thinking about it, which each session is one, you know, encapsulated in it's, 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 you know, it's a session in itself. And so when you're doing that, you're also making the most of now and making the most of each and, and every session, you know, and sometimes when we have the luxury of knowing that people are going to come back that, it, you know, I know I've done it like lots of times is that 
I'm thinking like, yeah, I'll get to that next time or something like that. Mm -hmm. But when we're looking at this, that each set, you know, like we're getting the most out of now, um, that it, it also helps and that we're not measuring outcomes by people coming back. Right. It helps just open up space. It certainly opened up space for me in, in my mm -hmm. head and how I'm like judging myself or looking at my work. Yeah, because there is, you know, you know, we've been in training clinic environments, both of us, for a lot of years. And so it's like. I know one way of like measurement is like client retention. I think people have heard that, you know, as a way of kind of measuring outcomes. And it seems like this kind of way of thinking, way of working kind of can um, kind of turn that around a little bit, destabilize that idea a little bit. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, and, I mean, I would say that it's surprising me. It's surprising to me that this, you know, like I'm working right now at a place, it's like a, a you know, it's, we're a contractor for a DMH. It's a place I'm working right now. Mm -hmm. And you would, you would think that's that they the, would be uh, trying. That's Department of Mental Health, everybody that's listening. So yeah, yeah sorry about that. Yeah, <laughs> sorry about that. And so, it, you know, I'm working in the LA area and I'm a, I'm a bit surprised. You would think that they would, it, it's quite the opposite. In fact, like it, it's hard. It, I'm unable to work this way exactly, you know, like in, because to discharge someone even right now might take a month, hmm. you know, like, hmm. like it's, it's, it's there, the system's not even hardly set up for this, but it doesn't mean that I can't use this mindset in my work with clients sure. still. Yeah. And so like I would, but so yeah, it surprises me that, that we're not in some ways across more settings trying to uh, measure outcomes in different ways than people coming back and retention rates. Yeah, right. Which is interesting because even in a lot of the feedback informed treatment process, I think, you know, there is a measurement about people coming back and this kind of butts up against that idea. And it's interesting. I like this kind of clash of ideas and where that might land us. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, last question. You know, one of the things I really enjoy about our friendship for us is that, you know, we'll get together and we'll just start talking about ideas and all that kind of stuff. And, and you always have questions about ideas and I get to have questions about ideas. But, but my last question is what books, ideas, thinkers, et cetera, are capturing your attention these days? Yeah, I had a feeling you're going to ask me this one. <laughs> and it's, it's funny because I've been thinking about this idea of, you know, like, cause I'm always looking for ways either outside of narrative therapy or outside of therapy. And the more stuff that I can bring from outside of the world of psychology and therapy to me, the, the better Same. First, Same. <laughs> first off. Um, and so I, I, I had like somebody in my head that I had been thinking of and then I like, and then you asked me to come on the show and I couldn't think of like, what was that person? And so, cause I actually have quite, quite a few of them, but the main one that I was thinking about is this guy, uh, Thomas Tao. And so he's a critical psychologist out of Canada. I think it's York university in Canada. And he writes a lot about, um, like quite, you know, like the medical model. He's like, uh, critiquing the medical model. And, you know, so like even recently I was on a phone call with, um, let's see, uh, um, like C not CPS, but DCFS was that department of child and family services, you know, so I'm, you know, so I'm working with, um, this family and they're, you know, they're 
already had a CPS case and they were then removing the kids from the home. And so we had this meeting with them, you know, and so, and so, well, first I'll say Tao has this idea that he talks about in research called epistemological violence. And, and what it is, is that when in research from the data, you could draw multiple conclusions, you know, and the conclusion you draw is a conclusion that marginalizes or is a negative conclusion about another, you know, about the other. Right. And so I, I started thinking about this idea when I was talking with DCFS and we're talking and I've worked with his family. And I think taking the mom, taking the kids away from the family is absurd, quite like it, it, it just enrages me, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. And so when we're talking like we're having this call with DCFS and they're talking about. Um, so part of the like domestic violence is going on and like the it was something around like why blaming mom for have still having some contact with the father of the youngest two kids. And so the, the worker was saying, well, yeah, I asked her about this, but she just was justifying and give me lots of excuses and things like that. So she's, in my opinion, she's drawn a negative conclusion when lots of other things are possible, you know, like what's the difference by the way, between like justifying and like a legitimate reason, you know, like as soon as you start saying justifying excuses, that could look exactly the same as, as like, you know, a legitimate reason. And so I'm wanting to, so one of the things I'm interested in doing is taking, because to me that is like structural violence there, is that now we're going to remove the, the kids from the home based on um, their, how they're seeing what that is, you know, and it, it just enrages me quite honestly. So I won't, uh, Tal talks about epistemological violence. I want to kind of, I first started thinking about it in terms of like clinical, like when we're making these kind of things in therapy, just in general, like when, if we come to some conclusion about somebody, then, and there's something else could be going on. Like I want to be tending, I'm sure I've done it. You know, I want to be tending to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, and then the other stuff is like Travis Heath stuff around, um, uh, decolonizing psychology. So like similar stuff. So like I, I wanted, I'm really interested in that stuff and, and how, you know, my work might be that. Um, and, uh, yeah, and other things like, uh, in a similar way, I I'm not sure if you know, like, uh, if you've heard of James Hillman. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So like I just stumbled upon this stuff and he talks about some of the same stuff that Travis is talking about, which is like the psychology of the soul, you know? And so, I haven't, I've gone, I've read some of it, but I'm really interested in, you know, some like, you know, I'm not sure if all your listeners, because I wasn't all that familiar with like post-Jungian, you know, like you have Jungian, you have post-Jungian, which, you know, are people that might, you know, be looking more through a post-modern type lens. And so I'm interested in going back and looking at some of these things and how I might apply them to like a decolonizing practice now. Yeah, I think uh, James Hillman is somebody that's interesting. Um, I often have people read Healing Fiction. I don't know if you've read that book. Uh, but I also have a book, and I forget the title on, now you're bringing it up, on young, post, the postmodern, young and the postmodern movement or something like that. It was kind of interesting. So uh, that's interesting. You're getting into the, some of that, that post. And I think Hillman is the most important post-Jungian, you know. Um, but well, I think some of the post guys, like Hillman's like post, like he, you know, like he, he might be even, yeah, he, he's, I, but I think he's the most important as well. That's you right. know? Yeah. Because I watched him, I watched him in this video 
this is how come I started looking into him. I'm watching this video and they're introducing Hillman and they introduce him as the, like the founder of archetypal psychology. Right. And so right off the bat, the first thing he's, he's, he's like, he doesn't want to be the founder. Like I, I like that doesn't fit for him. Yeah. And I'm like, I didn't even exactly know he's like this post. Like I didn't know any of this stuff, but I knew something was up when he says this, I'm not interested in being the, like the founder of archetypal psychology. I'm interested in, and like, I'm a renegade psychologist is kind of what he was saying. And I'm like, hey, this sounds like my guy, you know, like the, my kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, he's archetypal psychology is more about the critique of psychology. It's not so much a theoretical model on its own. He's, he's more interested in deconstruction, you know, and I, I was even looking at some of Hillman's stuff. He's he was doing personifying the problem, you know, um, as well. And so. I mean, I think there's a lot of good. I'm, I'm a little surprised that this has gone past me. You know, like mm. there seems like there's lots of good stuff there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I yeah, I, I, like I said, if, if you haven't read it, people should read Healing Fiction. I think, uh, you know, it's different, but I mean, I think from a narrative perspective, it can maybe align in a lot of different ways. So, all right, Michael, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for being on my 100th episode. And, uh, this has been great to chat uh, uh, and hit record. We do this a lot, but we just don't, aren't recording. <laughs> yeah, so, but uh, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. All right, that's the show. And thank you, everybody. We got to 100 episodes. Thank you very much. Uh, if you want to get it, reach out to me, you can do it at theradicaltherapist at gmail.com. We're on all the social medias. Come find me, Instagram, at the Radical Therapist, Twitter, which I don't use, um, really. Uh, and Facebook, of course. You can find the, the Radical Therapist Facebook page. Come be part of the community. There's some events coming up, or an event, big event coming up that I talked about, the Radical Therapist Gathering happening in September. I'm going to get really more announcing that once a couple things get locked up and I can mention them, and uh, then we'll start selling tickets. But that'll be in Southern California in September, the Radical Therapist Gathering. So keep a lookout for that. And uh, again, thank you everybody that's been involved. Please uh, share the the episode. Please rate and review the show if you're on iTunes or wherever you're listening it at. That helps us get out in front of people. We appreciate that. And so that'll help us get to another hundred. So uh, thanks everybody. Uh, and as always, this has been the Radical Therapist Podcast. Thanks for listening.